the scripture right. Um, I don't know if you've ever ever witnessed a miracle. A miracle, by the way, is defined in the Oxford Dictionary, and the short one as an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. I don't know if you've ever witnessed a miracle. I guess many of us know of miracles in the sense where um, people have been uh, healed or uh, things have happened which are just not ex- uh, explicable. Um, I shared just last uh, week, uh, I think was it was a community group, we were talking about a week before talking about something to do with this. And I just said, um, there was we had a lady in our small group back in the previous church uh, who herself was an alcoholic, so it's amazing how God had worked in her life. Um, and, uh, and she had a daughter who had uh, uh, um, Crohn's disease, you know, where they keep... And she, she asked us to pray as a community group because her daughter was going to the hospital for uh, more treatment, and they were concerned that this was a series of... O- she'd had a series of operations, and there wasn't much left... I don't understand these things, but there wasn't much intestine left to, to work with. And uh, she, 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 so we prayed as a group. But anyway, on her way to on her way to the hospital, this lady she took a taxi, and the driver knew obviously she was going to a hospital. And uh, he looked her in the mirror and he said, "You know, I can see you're worried. What's the problem?" And she explained to him about her daughter, and uh, and he uh, he stopped the cab. He stopped the cab, and he said, "Are you a believer?" And she said, yes, I am. And he said, I'm a believer too. He said, I believe, and he's typical Nigerian Christian, this is, I believe that God can work miracles. Do you believe God can work miracles? And he said, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for your daughter now. And he said, you know what? After I've dropped, to, dropped her, you off, I'm going to drive back to my church where my apostle, prophet, teacher, whatever he called him, and I'm go- we're going to pray for your daughter then as well. And she, she did. And anyway, just the, the, the story is that after the operation, the consultant called her in to speak to her about her daughter. He said, well, we've operated and we've had to take, took some more intestine away. Um, but he said, I have to say something. Um, he said something rather unusual. He said, because what we found is when we came to operate this time is that she had, she had more intestine now than she had last time. And it doesn't grow. And he said, we can't explain that, but that's she's actually got more now than she had before. And, uh, and so we perhaps all of us can relate to stories like that, where something has happened which we've not been able to explain and which we believe where God is at, is at, is at work. Well, this passage, is, as uh, Chris has read to us, has got two miracles in it. But there's much more in this passage than just the two miracles. But um, So we won't just think about those as we look through it. So we come to, we, we're going to the story of Acts, the book of Acts. And um, right at the beginning of Acts, the, the writer Luke tells us that this is effectively volume, volume two and that in volume one, he's written in his gospel about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts, of course, is what happens next. It's what Jesus continues to do through his church in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the working of the Holy Spirit, uh, now he's gone. 
And that's what the whole of Acts is, and it's what happens next as God continues to work out his purposes. I want us to just read that verse 31 uh, together again. Um, I did, I, I had the, uh, it was a joy uh, of listening to David's sermon in the week, and also, um, uh, what's your name? Graham's from the week before. Um, and uh, I would encourage you, if you miss sermons, to, to listen to them online. And I, I found both of them a real encouragement as I listened to them. But I noticed that David didn't put lots and lots into his sermon, but of course he didn't dwell on this verse at the end of uh, at the end of the section 931. So I want us to start there and end there this morning. So the verse in the NIV reads, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. That's one of those summary verses that appear throughout the Acts of the Apostles. And um, it's a bit, it's sort of summarizes, it sort of holds, brings things together in terms of what's been happening. It's a bit like um, a half-time, you know, report. Um, every so often you have these little uh, interludes. And, uh, the and it's, it's really important to, to, to look at what, 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 is, at what is happening. So let's just look quickly at that verse. It says, then the church. So we have how many churches? Well, that is singular. There is only one church in the Acts of the Apostles. The church may be in different places, different people, people who don't know each other, but there is only one church. And uh, so we see that church that starts at Pentecost in chapter 2. When, when Peter, uh, af after the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches that sermon, doesn't he? And 3,000 people respond to that and are baptized. So the church, starting in Jerusalem, but then spreads, we've seen it spreading throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Um, in chapter 8, after Stephen's death, there's that great persecution of the church. And it says all the, all the believers other than the apostles are scattered to Judea and Samaria. And then also in chapter 8, we've got Philip um, in Samaria itself. You know, remember Samaria, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. So, I mean, this is, this is an amazing ministry, the amazing thing that's happening as Jewish believers go into Samaria and start preaching uh, the good news. And... Uh, uh, and then in also there, of course, a couple of weeks ago, um, Graham was mentioning about how Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch and how, therefore, through that, the message travels all the way down to Ethiopia. And, of course, as he said, the church in Ethiopia still looked back to, uh, to Philip as the man who started their church, in a sense, the apostle, or he wasn't actually an apostle, but the man who, who brought that church into being. So that's the church. And we have to remember that there's only one church. There is only one church. There is only one church in Gloucester. We always think of our church, my church, whatever else. But there is only one church in God's eyes. And that's we need to think about what that means for us as Christians. Working in our own churches, fellowshipping in our own churches. But what does it mean that there's only one church? 
to us. So the church, he says, throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. This is after Saul, as we learnt last week, had that amazing uh, meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And from being a persecutor of the church, dragging men and women off to prison, being in a sense responsible for their deaths, becomes uh, an agent by which God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will use uh, for his purposes. So it enjoyed a time of peace. And it says it was strengthened. And we can see this as this has been happening in the earlier chapters. In chapter 4, we see, Philip, P, um, we see Peter and John, don't we, arrested and threatened. And then after being beaten, they're released. And they go back to the church. What do they do? They go back to their church and they pray for boldness, don't they? They pray for courage. And they pray that God will speak and they pray that God will heal and do miraculous signs. And we read then, don't we, that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. And of course, then it goes on, there's a bit of a paragraph heading in, the, in, in my version probably, which sometimes can distract us. But having procla- proclaiming the word boldly, they also shared everything they had, is the next sentence in the next passage. And we see the church strengthened. And in chapter chapter 6, we see the church strengthened as well, in a sense, as, as, as these seven men, including Philip and Stephen, are appointed to look after, as I said when I preached on that passage, to look after the food bank, to feed the widows. And, uh, and of course, from, the, and from that, even other miracles happen. So the church is strengthened, and it's encouraged by the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 3, we read about the crippled beggar, don't we, that Peter and John meet. And they say to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And how he does, and people are amazed, and no doubt some uh, respond to that. And then chapter 5, we, we read how many, when the, when the apostles are arrested, and then of course they had to be rearrested because uh, God's the, uh, they were set free during the night by a miraculous work. But then they're rearrested, and we're told that the, they want to put them to death. They want to put them to death. And what do they say? We must obey God rather than men. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Giving them that boldness, that courage. And then they're set free. So strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Sounds quite strange, doesn't it, to say, to have encouraged by the Holy Spirit and living in the fear of the Lord. They almost sound as if they don't go together. You know, encourage sounds positive and good, and and then fear of the Lord. Um, fear. What does that mean? Well, we're told, aren't we, right through Scripture, that fear of the Lord is. We should fear the Lord. We should fear the Lord because He is the Lord God Almighty. Paul, uh, not Paul, um, uh, David, when we were praying earlier, said, 
prayed in his prayer about the angels say, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. He is almighty. He's the maker of everything, not just the things here, not just our planet, but the whole, the whole of the cosmos. And then also things that are not physical, things that cannot be seen. He is creator of them all. He is over them all. We should live in fear. You, as you know, I like, um, I like this C.S. Lewis book. I read another C.S. Lewis book last week, actually, but I won't, uh, it's got one or two wonderful illustrations in. But going right back to the, to the, to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, do you remember when uh, the, the children meet um, the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver? Yeah, do you remember that? They meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. This is really important now. Listen, okay? And, um, and, and, Mr. and Mr. Beaver tells the children about Aslan for the first time the lion. And uh, he says to them, he says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. See, he was a great lion. And at his roar, things would change, as we read later on. And we are to live in the fear of the Lord. And to go just a slight tangent, you know, in, chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, we have that wonderful little um, description, in a sense, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and how, um, let me put this down, and how he, uh, although he was God, in a sense, it did not uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped. Do you remember that passage? How he humbled himself and became a man, obedient to death. And then it goes on to say, doesn't it, that therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. don't know what that means. That and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah? He is Almighty God, and all creation, everyone, including every one of us, will stand before Him. We read in the Bible that people couldn't even stand before angels. People were shocked. People fell down as if dead when they met angels. What will it be like to stand? They're just one of His many creations. What will it be like to stand before Almighty God? Because all of us will do, and all of creation will do. And then in, in the passage that goes on, it says, it says these words. Sorry, I didn't turn to it, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Following that, this is what Paul, the writer of the Philippians, says. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He is rightly to be feared by us. Not in the cowering sense that he is going to punish us. But in the sense that he demands respect is too light a word. That he demands reverence. He demands from us humble obedience. 
because, and we read that in the pas- in the verses that earlier on in Philippians 2, just before that passage, that, that we therefore should do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Don't look to your own true interests, look to the interests of others. In other words, be like him. That's what he asks, and so it's right. So this church in Acts chapter 10, in this, in this strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Okay, now we haven't even looked at our passage today, I know, so now let's move quickly into that. But in a sense, what we read today I- itself bears out what that verse has said. We've got four people in our passage today, Aeneas, Tabitha, also called Dorcas, um, Simon the Tanner, and of course Peter. Now we know about Peter, but the other three people we've not heard about before, and I don't think we read about them again uh, other than th- in this passage today. And it takes, so there's four people, two places, Lydda, which is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and Joppa, which as my wife said on Wednesday night, is where the oranges come from, because it's also called Jaffa. But today it's called Tel Aviv, or rather, I don't know if Tel Aviv was just encircled or swallowed up little Joppa, I don't know. But, um, but that's, and that's about another 10 miles on. So we're talking about 20 and then another 10 or so miles to the coast, those two places. And we read at the beginning that Peter goes traveling about the country and he visits the saints in Lydda. Now, when we read the word saints, we might think, wow, who's this then? Well, these are just the believers. And in fact, in this same passage, we have three words used to describe Christians. And not one of them, of course, is Christian, as David said last week. They're called the saints. They're called believers. And, they're cl- and, and, and Dorcas is called a disciple. They're all descriptions, in one sense, of who we are. We have become saints. We have become holy in God's sight because we have believed and put our trust in the work of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we work that out as his disciples. We live that out as his followers. And so so Peter is going around and he's going to the churches, no doubt, and he's looking to encourage these small groups of Christians that are meeting in different places. And in Lydda, he finds this man called Aeneas, Aeneas, I don't know how to uh, pronounce it. Don't know anything about this guy other than he's been in his bed for the last eight years because he's paralyzed. And Peter simply says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. I mean, I, I suppose if he's been living sleeping on it for eight years, it needed, it needed a good tidy up. Get up. Peter, get up. I'm sorry, not Peter, get up. Aeneas, get up, Peter says. And immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Sharon, sorry, in Lydda and Sharon, saw him and turned to the Lord. They recognized that this was a miracle. This could not have happened any other way. And we know how it happened, because he says, Jesus Christ heals you. That's how you're healed. That's how this man has been made well. Because Jesus Christ has done it. And then there's this huge response from the people who live there. And God still does those things today. I, again, I think it was at community groups of 
apologies for any of our group who are here listening. Uh, I think I told the same story there. This, this was just a few weeks back. I was talking, a lady I know, Georgina, who works with Muslims, um, had been at the conference and she'd met a, a Christian uh, from uh, in Oxford University who was over here to do some studies. A guy, I think, not very old, I think probably around 40-ish, something like that. And she said to him, she said, you know, good to meet you. Um, um, what, what's your story in a sense? And he said how he's from a Muslim, doesn't matter where from, but he's from a, he was from a village area. And he went off to college um, and he became a Christian at college. And then he went back to his, um, to his community. Well, he, first of all, he had to choose whether this was a, a good thing to do because everyone in his community were Muslims. Um, and he knew what this would mean if he went back. And secondly, if he went back and said he was a Christian. But he believed that was the right thing to do, and he went back, and he, and, uh, it didn't go down too well. When he told his family and his community that there are Christians, well, they gave him a very hard time, but they didn't kill him. And they said, okay, in the end, you, if you, you, can, you can stay here, but we will have absolutely nothing to do with you. No one from this community will have anything to do with you if you, if you live amongst us. Because as far as we're concerned, you're dead, you're an outcast. He believed it right to stay there, although it was really difficult for him to stay there. And he stayed there, and he lived there for a while. And to cut a, sh a story short, in the end, th there was a man in the Muslim community who was um, a s an important man who was seriously ill. And they tried everything to, and this man was not getting any better. And in the end, they, they came to this guy and they said, uh, we, we understand that you believe that your God can heal people. And he said, I, I do. And he said, well, would you come and pray for this man? And they took him to the mosque and, he, and, and the man he prayed. And the strange thing was that when he prayed, the man just sort of gently um, collapsed on the floor and, and fell asleep on the floor. And, and he thought, I don't know what's happening here. And anyway, um, but actually what it was was something amazing because this man had not, he didn't know this, but this man had not been able to sleep, really sleep for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's partly why he was in such a terrible state. And, and then, and the story is that he got better. And as a result of that, some people in his community became Christians. Not many, but some. And the church there started to grow. And as it grew, they said, we need to tell other villages, other Muslim villages about Jesus Christ. And this guy formed a church. And at this point, Georgina says to him, she says, well, how big is your church now? 34,000, he said. There's 34,000 of us now in, the, in all the villages in, in my area that have come to know Jesus Christ. Amazing story. And this is, this is what happened isn't it? And then we have Tabitha at Joppa or Dorcas as she was called. It means gazelle. We have this picture of this lady, this busy lady almost hopping around and always doing good and helping the poor. Always doing good and helping the poor. Would you like that as your epitaph? That's a pretty good epitaph, isn't it? To put on your tombstone that you are always doing good and helping the poor. Well, there's other good ones, but that would be that would be a pretty good one to have.
and she's died. And uh, she'd done all this work looking after widows. Of course, widows were some of the most vulnerable people in the community because there was, as we know, there's no, no s social system to care for them. And if they didn't have a husband and if they didn't have children, who was going to look after them? And so sh this lady, Dorcas, has been has made it her business to try and help um, these people. Do you know anybody like that? Isn't it encouraging when you m meet somebody or know somebody like that? I, was I cannot help, whenever I think about anybody like this, then, and I've mentioned her here, I'm sure, before, because I've mentioned her several times in different sermons, I can't help but think of Auntie Doris. Auntie Doris, in my terms, was ancient when I was in my early 20s and we joined the church. She was probably only in her late 60s. She was not different, much different to me now. Um, but she was, um, well, no, I'm not quite there, sorry, let's correct that. Um, but get in there fast. And, and, uh, but Auntie Doris, Auntie Doris used to wear a grey mac and she cycled everywhere. And Auntie Doris um, had got a disabled husband. She'd got children, grown-up children who were not believers. So not the easiest situation. But Auntie Doris, if ever there was a need, Auntie Doris would do what she could to meet that need. If somebody was having a hard time, she'd bake them a cake. and take, she'd, There she would be on a bike, cycling with a cake strapped on the back or whatever else. She'd be there. When I joined the church, this old lady, here's me in my early 20s, this old lady comes to me and she said, she said, I really care about the young people in, our, in these streets around the church who don't come to the church. She said, would you help me start a club, a youth club for these, for these kids? Auntie Doris was the one who, who gave me a piece of paper, thinking about yesterday's prayer meeting, gave me a piece of paper early on in the life of that church, and she simply said, with a verse, and I can't remember what the verse is, but what it was about is, will you pray for God to revive us? Auntie Doris was a wonderful person. And her memory, as you can tell, has impacted me. Isn't it great to meet people like Auntie Doris? Do you want to be an Auntie Doris? I don't mean you have to wear the grey coat or recycle around or whatever, or even bake cakes. The church would grow if we had Auntie Doris's. And this lady was like Auntie Doris, or Auntie Doris was like this lady. But they've heard about Peter, and they've heard, they've heard perhaps about these wonderful miracles happening. They call Peter to come over to Joppa, to walk the 12 miles, or whatever it was, to Joppa. I don't know what Peter's thinking as he walks over to Joppa. He knows why he's going, because somebody's died. I don't know what you'd be thinking as you walk over to Joppa, but... Obviously, Peter, I don't know if he's thinking of how Jesus, you know, raised that girl or, or whatever else, but he, he obviously knows by the Holy Spirit why he's being called. And he just says to get up. Get up. And um, she does. don't know how long she's been dead, but she's been dead a little while. Takes a little while to walk 12 miles for a start off, doesn't it? And she gets up. This became all known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord as a result of that miracle. And there's just one final thing, and that is this, isn't it? Right in the last verse, 
we read Peter stayed at the home of Simon the Tanner. Now, you know, that idea of associating a name with a profession is quite normal, even in our society, isn't it? So we have Bob the Builder and Postman Pass and whatever else. But here we've got Simon, we've got Simon the Tanner. Now, you'll know a tanner, that's not, a tanner is working with animal skins, right? That's what they do. I don't understand it, but that's what they're, that's what they're doing. Why is it amazing that Peter should live with Simon the tanner? Well, because being a tanner means that you're working with dead animals. In Jewish terms, that made you unclean. That meant you could not, you could not, join with the worshippers. Also, it made would make Peter unclean by being there. And also, apart from that, there's a, there's a real problem for Jews. I don't think Tanners generally were that li- well liked by other people, not that it's personally, but th- because of the work that they were doing. It was dirty. It was smelly, right? It wasn't very nice. And yet we read it's this man that Peter chooses to live with. I remember at school, um, I see you, you know, and I said, nothing to do with me, but God did work in people's, in some guys, young guys' lives in the sixth form. And one of them was a guy called Steve Collins. Steve Collins became a Christian. Steve Collins was a very shy, retiring type, partly perhaps because his parents had got a fish and chip shop. And he lived in the flat above the fish and chip shop. And do you know what that meant? He smelt of fish and chips all the time. And people used to know that. And of course, kids can be a bit cruel at times and all the rest of it. So he wasn't the sort of, you know, flavor of the <laughs> wrong word. He wasn't the flavor of the month, I was going to say. That, that is mixing metaphors, you know. But he, but he became a Christian. So do we associate with the likes of Steve Collins? He wasn't the cool guy to have as part of your CU. And s- uh, but s- Peter stays with Simon the Tanner. Are we willing to associate with people who are not that cool? People who've got problems. I always remember George Rover saying, if we go by our no- if we were led by our noses, we'd not associate with at least half the world's population. Because they don't smell like we like we think they ought to smell or like we smell or whatever else. Are we willing to mix with those people? Because the truth is, it seems to me, just from my very small experience, is it seems to me that sometimes it's those people who are more willing to, to hear and respond to Lord Jesus Christ than many other people. And so we need to be willing to do that. So come back to the verse. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. It grew. It strengthened in terms of its, um, in, in, in the ways that we've looked at this morning, strengthened, encouraged, living in the fear of the Lord, that humble obedience of Tabitha, that um, willing to associate, um, I'll 
by Peter, as well as the miracles that we've read about. So the question is, I guess, can this church grow? Can this church grow? It isn't growing at the moment, is it? But can this church grow? And the answer is yes. Because God wants it to grow. That's not, I know that for a fact. God wants it to grow. The question is, is are we going to be in that position that this church, allow ourselves to be in that position that this church that we read about in Acts of the Apostles was? Where it allowed the Holy Spirit to work amongst them and to encourage them in the fullest sense of the word. And where they were going to live in fear of the Lord, recognizing that he was almighty God. And yet he was, he's, not ta- he's not tame, but he's good. And therefore to live lives of, of humble obedience to him. If we did that, some of the things that we've talked about this morning could happen in our church. And in the same way, people could be added to us. And we should be praying, and I should be praying, that God would do that amongst us. Not just not for us to say that we've got a good growing church, but for his glory. Because he is worth all of that and so much more.